0: Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. Well, the Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario starts work to rule on November 26th. They say it's not going to affect students' education. Meanwhile, on the local level, school boards are trying to find ways to mitigate the bus driver shortage here in the city. And the cost of the Canadian Senate has increased by more than a third over the last five years. That's only one of the problems that have come into focus. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The Elementary Teachers Federation of Ontario is beginning work to rule on November 26. That's about a week and a half or so away. Uh, We know the situation here. They and the high school teachers, in fact, are uh, without a contract and negotiations are not going well with the uh, minister. Uh, So we could well be heading towards another strike. Now, it's going to start off as work to rule, but there are other things that can happen there too. And I understand from past experience just uh, how precarious this can be, not just for the teachers, but for the kids and for the families that are going to be involved in this. Joining us to talk about the uh, consequences of this is Merritt Stiles. She is the uh, NDP uh, critic, of course, for education here in the provincial government. She joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Uh, Merritt, good morning. Thank you so much for the time today.
1: Thanks, it's great to be here.
0: Well, I wish it was under happier circumstances. This is a a pretty tense situation right now, and uh, uh, we've seen this play before, and it usually doesn't end well.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's obviously something that I'm hearing about from lots of parents and students, too, and and also the education workers, the teachers, because, you know, nobody really wants to be in this situation.
0: Well, here we are, uh, with the government seemingly digging their heels in, uh, it's... Interesting to note, and I'm sure you see this in the legislature, uh, we've talked to Mr. Lecce, the education minister, of course, on a, on a number of different occasions, and he sounds conciliatory and sounds as if he went, he's willing to, to be flexible about a, whatever needs to be done at the at the bargaining table. But then I start talking to some of the the uh, teacher reps, and they're saying, <laughs> these guys are digging their heels in, and, and they don't seem to want to move on any of the key issues.
2: Mm.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm not at the bargaining table, so it's hard for me to, to comment on exactly what's going on in there, but certainly that's what I'm hearing as well. And yesterday, the minister's response to, you know, this work action announcement was was really not very helpful, right? He he got out there and he sort of talked about how, you know, teachers were going to, you know, stop teaching, basically stop teaching math, and, and he really, I think, made things not uh, not a lot better and maybe a bit worse. And that's really, I think, what this government has done wrong since the beginning. I mean, Doug Ford got out there over a year ago and started to pick a fight with teachers in schools, and we've seen significant cuts to education. So, you know, my sense is that the education workers aren't just fighting for their own jobs. They're they're fighting for the future of our, our education system. And um, this is serious stuff, and the minister knows what needs to be done. Uh, to to get a deal, he knows that they've got to back off their cuts to education. Um, until he does that, and until he gets back to the table and gets serious, I, I think we're headed towards some difficult time.
0: Was this inevitable that we were going to land ourselves in this position right now, simply because of the confrontational attitude?
1: You know, I I don't I think that like again I think that when um, the premier with Doug Ford kind of came out over a year ago, and you know teachers of being union thugs. uh, That was probably not a great way to start uh, a negotiation. And, you know, they've also come out with legislation that caps wage increases. So, you know, in that respect, it's hard to have a a fair bargaining discussion when when a government is taking a position like that. So I don't think it was inevitable, though. I mean, I think the government could have chosen to approach this differently and i also think they have you know they have choices they can make and they're choosing to cut our classrooms
0: here's and, the, the, uh, the thing that yeah. concerns me though and I, i'll I'll take you back to, to not too long ago and you, you'll certainly remember this uh, is when a lot of these announcements were made about what they wanted to do with the the education system in this province you may recall there was a number of students that decided right across the province to walk out of class in protest to this and, uh, you know, whether you agree with the the, the way of doing it or not is, is inconsequential. The fact is, the government response and the premier's response was to blame the teachers and said they put them up to it. So right off the bat, he's drawing a line in the sand there.
1: That's right. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that was a really key moment. I mean, that was over a year ago now in September of uh, 2018, when the the students all walked out in many high schools across the province, and they knew exactly why they were walking out. They weren't they weren't uh, <laughs> encouraged by anyone. They were walking out because they were mad about the changes to the health and physical education curriculum. They were upset about cuts that were coming, and uh, and I think they sent a really strong message. I mean, Mr. Ford uh, is also not really treating students with respect. I mean, they're the ones who are experiencing the bigger classrooms. The loss of courses that some of them need to actually graduate. Uh, the loss of some of their favorite teachers and other supports in schools. And, and they're the ones who are, I think, actually the most unhappy. And I think the government is making a big strategic mistake by not listening to our young people today.
0: Well, they've certainly got their talking points, and I know the minister is using those, And, and as are some of the acolytes, of course, that are coming back with the same two or three things. But what I'm hearing on a pretty regular basis here, Merritt, and, and this is not in the hypothetical anymore because these most, most of these changes have already been implemented, uh, we've got students that aren't having as many choices and options for the, the kind of courses they want to take which is supposed to help stream them into the career that they want to have when they finish their education that's been limited uh, as you said the quality of education has been reduced because of some of the cuts that have been made uh, and I guess it's in, probably it's it's a moot point now to remind everybody about what the premier said that nobody was going to lose their job because they have uh, but they don't seem to want to talk about that either but in this this is this is basically blowing up a system that I don't think needed blowing up
1: yeah, you know, I mean, I, I would say uh, for a lot of people and, you know, myself as a parent as well of two kids who went into the in public education system, you know, we, we, we could use some investment in education. Uh, we didn't need things to go in this direction. Ontarians certainly didn't vote for that. And, uh, and, they're, and I think that's what the government's feeling and, and conservative MPPs are feeling that in their riding. Um, yeah, we have students um, across the province. And don't forget, this is only year one. The impact on classroom sizes and high schools in particular and also in the loss of the course options, which is a, a result of that, is going to play out over the next three years. So it's actually going to get worse, not better. And we are going to lose 10,000 teaching positions. And the Financial Accountability Office is the one who confirmed that. So the government's heading in the wrong direction. Ontarians know it and, and teachers know it. And if they were, if they want to end this uh, this bargaining situation, they know exactly what needs to be done. They need to get back to the table. They need to reverse their cuts to education, and they need to get our students into school.
0: And I go back because I know that I've had a couple of the government MPPs on the program and married, and they, they've come out they, again with the, with the common talking point here as well. Listen, we have a mandate to govern because we were elected and we have a majority. Uh, but this this is not what they said they were going to do. Uh, They did not say as he was campaigning that they were going to blow up the education system. They did not say they were going to blow up the uh, health care system, which they've done at the same time. Uh, They did not say they were going to do what they did to Toronto City Council and threaten to do it with other councils right across the province. That was not part of the mandate. That was not anything that he said during the campaign. And I would venture to say that if those were some of the talking points during the campaign, he might not be sitting in the corner office at Queen's Park right now.
1: Yeah, th- this was all done, uh, you know, if they had this plan, they certainly didn't share it with Ontarians. And, and you're right. I mean, Mr. Ford, he said very clearly, not one job was going to be lost. Uh, you know, and, and he's got all his talking points, and the new Minister of Education is real smooth, but, but at the end of the day, they're not reversing their cuts. And this is something that Ontarians are very, very clear about. I'll tell you, I hear from parents and students and teachers all the time. I have a long list of emails to get back to today from people who are emailing me to say, you know, I, I lost this course. I can't get into my this uh, advanced chemistry class or whatever because it doesn't exist anymore. My whole plan for university is up in the air now. And, you know, and, and that's not even, not to forget that he's also made life more difficult for kids, uh, for young people who are going into post-secondary, into colleges and universities. This is not what we as Ontarians elected Doug Ford to do. And I don't think he has a mandate to do it. And I think when, if, you know, the teachers end up taking work action like this, I don't think Mr. Ford's going to have the support of of, the, of Ontarians. I think they have a lot of parents and, and students who got their back this time.
0: Well, whatever's going to happen in the next provincial election, I, I hesitate to, to predict anything at this stage, seeing what's happened in the last couple of elections here in this country and in this province. But I'm more concerned about the damage that's being done before that election even happens. And that's as of right now. And your point about yeah. the university, post-secondary students is well taken as well. I mean, I, I know that he said, well, I'm reducing the tuition. Well, good on you. But because of the cuts he's made to universities and community colleges right now, there are course selections that have been eliminated, and the, the students that may have uh, end up paying less in tuition may not get in there in the first place. So it's kind of a moot point, isn't it?
1: Yeah, and, and you know, uh, you know, Ford and, and Lecce and all of those ministers and everybody, they keep talking about how you know they're trying to – Create jobs and and, and and this is good for the you know 21st century economy. Well, I see them going in the wrong direction, right? They they're they're eliminating the kinds of courses that teach us how to collaborate. Um, they're even eliminating the courses, frankly, like some of the smaller classes in skilled trades and stuff that we know that we need students to be to be heading in those directions, and they're eliminating those things. And, you know, it's it I I know the Minister of Education always says, oh, you know, this is 21st century learning. And I say, no, you're taking us back to the 19th century. Uh, This is not what employers are telling us we need to do. This is not helpful to the economy. And you know what else? And I really believe this, you know, students, young people, especially it's rough right now. They're suffering from a lot of stress and anxiety. And we, we know that, you know, suicide rates are up among young people. It's, it's really devastating. And if we take away the one course that a kid loves to do, whether it's music or art or drama or whatever it is, workshop, you know, they get to go to that class. That's what makes going to school worthwhile. And if we take those caring adults out of the school, I'm really worried about what that means for young people today.
0: When we were in a similar situation a few weeks back now with uh, the support workers in the education system, uh, they did, at the 11th hour, t- cobble some sort of a deal together. Although, uh, talking to some of the membership, they weren't crazy about it. But it did pass, and, and the strike was averted, as it turned out. Do you see that happening here? Because the clock is ticking.
1: Well, you know, uh, I, I think that's really up to the government. I mean, obviously, in the, in the, in the election, uh, the education workers, the QP workers uh, deal, um, you know, they were able to get the government to back away on a few things. Um, but, you know, there was a federal election looming at the time and there are a lot of other factors in play um you know again i'm not at the bargaining table but i'm not hearing good things um uh in terms of where the government's at there and i i really i really think the government knows exactly what they need to do they need to stop being stubborn about this nobody asked for these cuts they need to reverse the cuts that will at least set us on the path to some kind
0: of agreement the concern here i think i guess is is, as you say it's attitude And, and it's it's a stare down contest that's going on right now Uh, just as if they they want to pick a fight. And I guess this is playing to their core, you know, because uh, we saw this back in the 1990s when the government of that day decided they were going to make teachers and nurses uh, the bad guys in in this whole system. And they seem to be, this is like part two of this whole scenario. Uh, And there are people that are going to gravitate to that and say, yeah, you're right, they're overpaid, they don't need this, they don't need that. Uh, but I think we're smarter now. I think we've been through that once, and a lot of the people that are listening to this show right now experience that, and they understand the turmoil that's caused when there's a, a work to rule, and eventually if, if there's going to be a strike, even worse scenario. Uh, but the way that this impacts families, it's not just the, the, the education portion of this, it's the impact it's going to have on daycare, it's the impact on people that are going to say, well, my kid's going to be home all day, what am I going to do, who's going to look after them? This is This is really opening a can of worms.
1: Yeah, I mean, it really impacts the economy, actually, right? Like, if you think of all of those families that will be struggling with how to, whether or not they can afford to stay home, um, who's going to stay home with the kids, uh, and, you know, some of the child care centers that are located in schools, if schools were eventually to actually be shut, then, then yeah, where do you send your children? So, it is, a, it's going to be a, a crisis. It's, it's definitely more than just, you know, our kids won't get schooling, which is significant anyways, but that, that we, we will not be able to, to get to our jobs during the day. That's that's a big hit for a lot of families. And, you know, I, I think that what's different this time than back in, in the Mike Harris years, for example, even, is that it looks like families are, uh, parents are really supportive of the education workers, right? They're seeing the impact in classrooms. And, you know, we, we talk a lot about how great our education system is, and it is. We, we actually rank very well in the world. Um, but, you know, I, I do think that it's a system that has not, we have not invested adequately in education for many years, under the liberals, under the conservatives. Like, we have got to, 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 to fix a few things in our education system. And so cutting, um, especially cutting uh, the, the number of, of adults in the classrooms, um, increasing classroom size and this move to mandatory online classes—I uh, got to tell you—that is something that I am hearing across the board. People are really worried about that. Students are freaking out. It is uh, there's no research to suggest this is going to work well for anyone. You know, these are just bad ideas. It's bad. It's going to be bad for our schools, bad for our kids, bad for our economy. And the government can reverse course. They just need to do it. <laughs>
0: Well, and they boil it down. I know that the minister's comments uh, yesterday were simply, well, the teachers are asking for too much money. That—that But those, that's not the issue I hear from teachers. When I talk to to Mr. Bischoff and, and Mr. Hammond and other people that are representing these people, uh, it's the stuff you've just talked about. So the government's got to get their act together, and they've got to be a little more honest about this. Uh, Maren, I hope this is going to get resolved for everybody's sake. I really do appreciate the time today, though. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Merritt Stiles, who was the NDP education critic, of course, in the provincial government, it's it's a precarious situation, and and it's uh, something that I don't think anybody wants to go through once again. And you know, no matter what your stand is on government or what your political affiliation is, the fact is is that we can't have a, a strike, and it actually could get a lot worse because we're simply talking about the elementary school teachers who will begin job action uh, on the uh, twenty twenty six of this month. Uh, the high school teachers, secondary school teachers' federation. Uh, whose conciliation effort failed. Uh, they're in a legal strike position by November the 18th. And uh, lest we forget uh, that uh, teachers, the English Catholic teacher system is also uh, on the precipice. They voted 97% in favor of strike action. So uh, this could get bad before it gets a whole lot better if the government doesn't uh, buckle down and, and sit down and talk to these people about trying to avoid something as, as dangerous as a, a strike w- with not just one set of teachers, seemingly most of them, or all of them if not. We're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Feedback that I usually get every time we start talking about education and uh, the government, of course, and their contributions to this or lack of contributions, I guess. Uh, and, and some emails already saying, why don't the teachers just take a salary cut, and take some of their $105,000 salary? Uh, I don't know a whole lot of teachers making that kind of money. And I don't know if this individual knows a whole lot of teachers making that kind of money. Uh, I do know a lot of teachers are spending money out of their own pocket for classroom supplies and other things uh, that uh, the board has not been able to supply anymore because of some of the budget cuts. So uh, don't drink the Kool-Aid. Just let's see how this thing works out, okay? And hopefully we do not have to have any job action or strikes. Uh, The uh, boards of education have got other problems, though, besides that one. They're sitting there watching this happen, wondering how this is going to end out. But there's some transportation problems at, here in the Hamilton area, especially, uh, that they're trying to tackle right now. Uh, local school boards have launched a study to try to mitigate the bus driver crisis, and it is a crisis, I guess, here in this city. Alex Johnstone is the uh, chair of the Hamilton-Wentworth District School Board, and uh, she joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show to try to explain this. Alex, how are you doing today?
3: Good morning, Bill.
0: With the possibility of a job action and maybe a strike, that maybe even more than one strike, because the secondary school teachers are in a strike position as well. I know these are pretty rough times, but uh, I'm glad that uh, that we've brought this issue back again because we've talked about this for a number of years. Right right now, maybe you could outline for our listeners exactly what the problem is with school buses and school school bus drivers.
3: Thanks so much, Bill. I'll start by saying that uh, as as many Hamiltonians know, that the bus driver shortage has been an issue, a growing issue over the last number of years. Uh, Right now we have students that are taking the bus and the bus is arriving late anywhere from five minutes to over an hour Uh, As of last week, we know that the average uh, delayed bus time was 20 minutes. And with that, uh, we have over 200 students across Hamilton that are arriving late to school each and every day. This has a significant impact on the first learning block and what we know is that the first learning block of the day is the most important learning block. That's when students are most susceptible to learning and we are, we're very concerned about the impact that on health and safety, we're concerned about the impact on our student learning and achievement. Uh, Also, from a financial point of view, we are concerned is our contracts with our bus companies are coming up in a year, and at that time, we do anticipate a significant budget increase as we have seen uh, that has taken place by the surrounding boards.
0: We should mention a, a couple of things. As you mentioned, there are a couple of different companies that you're dealing with here to, that supply these things. And I know you've been in contact and in discussions with them over the last while, Alex, about having to deal with this. What What's their explanation as to why the shortage continues?
3: The shortage is not unique to Hamilton. And in fact, it's not unique to school buses or school bus drivers. Across um, North America, there is a shortage in transportation drivers. If you speak with individuals in the trucking industry, they're also facing a driver shortage. Uh, so I think that it's felt perhaps more significantly with bus drivers because they are such uh, you know low wage positions. We have had conversations with the province. We were very hopeful uh, a couple years ago under the past government where a provincial review was started that work was continued under the new government. However, There really hasn't been any significant changes to transportation um, in terms of significantly increasing the budget line there. So that's where boards like ourselves are looking for other means to address the issue. Uh, We know that other boards, such as the Waterloo Region Board next door to us, they did conduct a bell time study, and what that means is uh, you, you conduct a study, you look at changing bell times to, in, um, in order to allow the exact same driver to complete multiple runs for multiple schools. And um, when you have the bell times too closely together, they are only able to complete one or two runs. So by spacing them out, the same driver can uh, pick up more hours, which is uh, normally welcomed, um, and they can also complete more runs. That means that you require less uh, um, less of a fleet. You require a smaller fleet uh, because you can have the same bus serving multiple schools.
0: This is a very frustrating exercise, I understand, because, it, and as you're right, it's not a new issue. It's been going on for quite some time. Uh, and, and I know that money, it all comes down to money. It seems like just about every time, whether we're talking about teachers and, and job actions or strikes, or, but the, the education minister has to understand uh, they can talk all they want about curricula and things of that nature, but job one is to get the students to school and get them there on time. And, and that's going to take money. Uh, that's This is really what it comes down to.
3: Absolutely. And I think here in Hamilton, we are not waiting any longer. Um, it is, as you described, it, it is a crisis for many families when they are having to wait outside, especially when the snow starts to fly, and they are waiting for that bus to come. It is a huge issue. Uh, with that, we, we want to ensure that our students are able to to walk in together in the morning. Uh, they are able to start their day with o Canada, with announcements, to be a part of that settling process so that they can begin the first learning block of their day together.
0: It's, uh, it's, it's a difficult situation, and I know that every time we talk about these sorts of things, you say, well, it's money, 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 and the government, of course, has an austerity program that's ongoing right now. Uh, but this is difficult for the companies as well. I mean, we're talking through your uh, lens, of course, at the Board of Education and, and trying to get the students there. But when I've talked to uh, to people that are in this industry that, that actually provide the school buses, uh, they tell a very similar tale to what we hear about people that are making minimum wage or t- essentially uh, a wage that is not sustainable. And so as a result, we know... That uh, a lot of those drivers don't stay in the job for very long because they're looking for something better. Uh, sometimes they just don't show up and say, "Yeah, I quit. I can't do this anymore." It's 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 very difficult. I mean, everybody seems to be in the same boat right now, and it really comes down to the fact that uh, that you know, if the money's not on the table and they don't have enough people to do this, uh, then you're the one that have to deal with the the, the results of this, and it's not a pretty picture
3: we have excellent drivers and i i really want to highlight that um our drivers have been going above and beyond picking up additional routes uh, they're in a very challenging situation where uh, they're the only adults in the room and their back is to you know anywhere from 40 to 70 kids and uh, they are trying to manage the safety of driving and also all of the interactions that, of course, happen on the bus. And uh, when they are late and they're often uh, running behind schedule, uh, they're also, you know, talking with the parents. And sometimes the parents are frustrated uh, and also working with the school. So I think I, I want to highlight the work that our, our drivers do and um I'm always uh, heartwarmed to see posts, whether it's on uh, Facebook moms groups or on Twitter, where we see parents commenting about um, uh, the professionalism of the drivers as well as the care. Uh, Drivers who dress up uh, in the, I guess, holiday colors, especially as we're heading into the month of December, um, and just go the extra mile to make uh, make our students feel safe and, and welcome. That said, it is it is a difficult job, and oh, it's and a stress, it's a word. stressful
0: job. I mean, you talk to people that do this, and I know some people that do, that drive school buses, and it's tough. I mean, if you if you've ever had little kids, I mean, you know, if you've got two or three of them in your house, sometimes, I mean, they can get on. A bit, it can be nerve wracking. But how about forty kids on any given day? Uh, it's a tough mm-hmm. job, and there's a plus the fact that I was watching one of them in our neighborhood on Friday or Monday during that snowstorm. Uh, you still got to drive. You can't say, oh, it's, it's messy outside. I better just stay home. You've got a responsibility. It's, it's, it is it's a very stressful job.
3: So that's where we have been working with our transportation consortium. Um, both uh, the Catholic Board and the Public Board have come together. This past year, we did look at putting both of our policies in a line, uh, making changes on both ends. And uh, we also completed... Um, updating our our data system for the bus transportation uh, consortium, um, so completing that in order to prepare the bell time study. We had completed smaller bell time reviews in uh, specific areas previously. This is the first time we have done a citywide review of all bell times. And with that, we have seen the positive results at neighboring boards, such as Waterloo Region, and we are very hopeful that we will have similar results
0: uh, here in Hamilton. Alex, let, let, maybe just so people understand uh, that w- where we're coming from here, uh, this is a collaboration obviously between the, your board and, and, and the Catholic Board of Education, uh, but in fairness both of you have already done a number of initiatives and undertaken a number of initiatives right now to try to mitigate the impact uh, with school bus routes and sharing routes and sharing the buses and things of this nature. Uh, so you know, it's not as if we're starting from square one here, Do you have any options? I don't want to presuppose how this report's going to end up and and what it's going to recommend, but looking at what other jurisdictions have done, do you have a lot of options at this stage to try to deal with this problem?
3: So this past year, this past September startup, we brought on a a new fifth carrier uh, in order to assist with the bus driver shortage. Unfortunately, uh, we were uh, very hopeful that that was going to provide a temporary um, uh, solution in the meantime as we underwent uh, the bell time study for this year, and unfortunately, um, some of our other carriers experienced such significant and unexpected driver shortages that even with bringing on a new carrier, it um, uh, the entire problem was not mitigated. And so with that, we have taken action. we have changed our policies. We've brought on a new care, uh, carrier. Um, we have we have um, to date done everything before taking the last step, which is a bell time study. And so now we're at the point where we we are completing that full bell time study. Uh, the results of that will be shared with the public early in the new year, and with that uh, we will consider what the. Um, some bells, some schools will have their bell times changed, others will not. And with that, we'll take the information and we'll begin the work with the community about how to best to support the rollout. And we will very much be looking to other boards who've already undergone bell time studies and learn from them in terms of how to successfully roll out those changes.
0: Alex, how will you make the determination about uh, which schools might have to undergo these changes and which ones are going to be maintaining the status quo?
3: So that is a report that's put together by the Transportation Consortium. It's all algorithms with regards to how to properly space out all of the different school bell times so that you can maximum the n- number of runs of the bus between between the schools.
0: Uh, so this report that's going to be done then, I, I assume presupposes... Uh, that you're not going to get much in the way of help from the ministry here. In other words, not a whole lot more money, uh, probably not more drivers. So you're just dealing with, with the numbers that you have right now and trying to make that work.
3: That is correct. At this point, we can no longer wait uh, for um, a I guess, an additional response from the ministry. We do need to take matters into our hands. We are concerned about the number of students that are arriving late. Um, we are concerned about the health and safety. We are concerned about learning, uh, the impact on student learning achievements. And also, as mentioned, a year from now, when our contracts come up for renewal, we are concerned about our ability to remain, uh, to remain in budget
0: you're concerned about this. Uh, I've talked to other heads of boards around this area, Halton in particular, and of course the Catholic boards. They're concerned about this. What kind of feedback are you getting from the ministry? Are they are they aware what the cons- the problem is, and are, are they sharing that concern?
3: They are aware. I personally had a conversation with uh, the deputy minister uh, last summer and uh, went over in detail our transportation report. Uh, that was a year ago. Um, as I said, the the current government has picked up um, the review um, that was started by the last government. And, and this has been ongoing. So I, I want to highlight that this uh, these concerns were raised under the last government. They continue to be raised under this government. Um, at this point, though, we and, they, and to their credit, they did increase uh, the transportation budget. Um, however, it, it it does not go far enough, and um, so that is where boards like us are facing the crunch, and we're we're having to make decisions in order to ensure that our students are arriving on time and
2: safely.
0: Do they have the data that you're going to be working with here about, for instance, the disruption that is being caused by students being late? Do they understand exactly how this is impacting?
3: Yeah, so that data has all been provided to the ministry, um, again, both under the last government and the current government.
0: So with that information and with that knowledge then... Uh, You would think that they'd have a better grasp of the issue. I understand that they have increased the funding. We know that uh, some time ago, but it just seems as if they pulled a number out of their hat and simply said, okay, we're going to give you this now. uh, But they didn't seem to have applied that to the concerns and the principles that you've got. Had they done that, uh, you probably would have got a much better and a much more effective uh, funding package to be able to deal with this issue.
3: Well, I'm not going to presuppose what, uh, how the, you know, government and how the ministries determine their numbers. Um, all I can speak to is our directly here in Hamilton. This is an issue that our board, uh, and our consortium is working to address alongside with the Catholic board that, uh, we recognize that we have to act and we are.
0: When you do make this determination and and you you get this report, and as you mentioned, that's going to have an impact on bell times around the schools, Uh, how do you bring the the, the families into this, the the parents into this? Because obviously this is going to have an impact on them as well.
3: We recognize that this will have an impact on families. For some bell times, they may only be changing by five minutes. Um, For others, uh, it may be more significant. We'll have to wait to see what the report uh, entails. That said, we are absolutely committed to sharing that information with as much notice as possible. And that's why we are looking to share that in the new year uh, with changes to be introduced for next September. So that families can have the time to make arrangements uh, and also so that we can work with them to find out how we can best support the rollout of these changes. Other boards uh, did look for uh, ways in order to support families uh, when in, uh, when changes were first being introduced. So we will be turning to our fellow boards to... Um, to to take from their learning from uh, this exercise so that we can ensure the most uh, uh, smooth rollout possible for our families.
0: So we can anticipate then some public consultation and uh, probably some meetings, uh, open houses, whatever the case might be, uh, sometime in the new year to implement, well, Mm -hmm. I guess, first of all, let people know uh, before there's any implementation then.
3: Uh, communication is uh, going to be key through this whole process and and that's why we're looking to get this information into families' hands as soon as possible.
0: Alex I know we'll talk further about that in a couple of months I guess when you get some numbers and some data and some recommendations and uh, we look forward to that conversation. Thanks for the time today.
3: Thank you Bill.
0: Alex Johnstone of course chair of the board of the uh, Hamilton Board of Education as uh, they try to deal with uh, well school buses and, and getting there on time It's and, so, and as I say it's just not a Hamilton problem Uh, It impacts Hamilton, but it's a province wide problem that uh, other boards are dealing with, hopefully in the same fashion. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Your tax dollars at work. Uh, CBC's done some research into uh, the Senate and expenses uh, for the Senate, the upper chamber, of course, in our parliamentary system. Uh, The cost to run the Senate of Canada has increased by more than a third. In the last five years, as uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's reform agenda has led, they say, uh, to increased expenditures in the upper house, uh, $85.4 million a year back in 2014-2015, and that is now up to $114 uh, million uh, for the uh, fiscal year that's uh, just about to end right now. What's going on up there? Let's uh, bring Duff Coniger into the conversation, co-founder of Democracy Watch and adjunct professor at the University of Ottawa. Duff, good morning. Thank you for the time today. My pleasure. Uh, Do these numbers surprise you?
2: Uh, No, they don't, actually. Not at all. Um, Senators haven't cleaned up their spending. And uh, despite the Mike Duffy scandal and other spending scandals, it's still um, essentially legal for them to claim that pretty much anything is Senate business and expense it and have the public pay for it. Let me ask you about yeah, that, it's because it's just one of the ways in which the Senate is a, is an
0: ongoing scandal. Yeah, exactly. I, I, I wanted to bring that into the conversation. I'm glad you touched on that, uh, because we all know that the, the charges against Duffy were dropped, and there's still some legal action pending. I, I understand lawsuits and things of this nature. But it, if I'm characterizing this correctly, if essentially, rather, what the judge said at that trial was, look, it, they all do it. it. This goes on all the time. Nothing to see here. You can go now. Uh, yeah, which is which is really giving these guys license to say, yeah, okay, fine, game on.
2: Yes, and so what the Senate did after that was they tightened up um, the production of receipts to have expenses paid for, but they left the rule still open that as long as it's Senate business, which is not defined in any restricted way at all, pretty much whatever a senator thinks is their business is Senate business, then they can expense it. They just have to produce the receipts.
0: Well, there's a list here, and if you, I'm sure you've seen these numbers too. Because uh, they're trying to justify this, and they're talking about well, research office uh, dis- expenses, travel, living expenses. Uh, that's a rather interesting term, living expenses. Uh, it, human resources, media relations. Uh, they've hired more people in, in support staff. What's, the, what's I don't understand? What's that all about?
2: Uh, I don't know either. <laughs> I don't know either. The Senate sits from Tuesday to Thursday. So they don't even work a full week, and uh, what can they say? It's it, it's there's other things going on too, where senators are now claiming they're not going to be called liberals anymore or conservatives. They'll be called progressives, or I can't remember what the conservatives' new group of senators split that split off is called. No matter how they spin it, they get to do whatever they want. They get to vote however they want. They're not representative of anybody even though they're appointed by a province, but you know when they say, well, I'm voting this way because to protect my province's interests, they're making that up. They don't consult with anybody uh, formally to find out what the will of voters is in their province before they decide how to vote. They're unelected, they're unaccountable, and they're dangerously undemocratic. Uh, unless something's clearly unconstitutional, they should not be voting down what the House proposes because the House is made up of people who are elected and accountable.
0: Accountability is such a key part of this whole thing, and and we've had this debate in how many generations now, Duff, about Senate reform. Since Uh, 18—I believe
2: 1878 was the first proposal to abolish the Senate.
0: Well, there you go. Well, we know governments move at glacial speed, but this is ridiculous. Yes. And the the solution really
2: is to shut it down, because, you know, they say, well, we do these research reports and expert senators look at these things— They're not usually experts, actually. A lot of them are actually uh, essentially lobbyists for big businesses because they have investments in big businesses or they sit on the boards of big businesses. And that's all legal under the Senate ethics rules, which are a joke. Uh, And they're no more expert than any other uh, think tank. So all those senators can join the boards of think tanks, provide their expertise to think tanks, save all the money from the Senate, increase the independence of MPs who are currently under too much control of their by their party leaders, has been talked about as well for decades, and uh, increase the number of MPs outside of Ontario and Quebec so that you can't have a majority government just with MPs from Ontario and Quebec. And then you'll have the regions represented by elected, accountable people who are empowered to be independent, can't, are not cannot be forced to toe the party leader's line, And we don't need the Senate at all. We can do it all in the House, as all the
0: provinces do. But the problem here, and you and I have had this discussion in the past... Uh, is that the people that are, are charged with making those decisions and have the, that responsibility are just are, are simply saying, well, look, at no, 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 we're getting pretty good up here. We'll police ourselves. We'll, we'll let you know if there's anything going on, whether it's expense accounts or whatever the case might be. Self-policing seems to be the rule up there. And every time we raise a stink about it, uh, they just say, no, 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 we're, we're accountable here. But we never get to see the numbers.
2: No, it's true. And the Senate, if there was a serious proposal moving forward to shut down the Senate, senators actually get to vote on that and if they didn't approve it it wouldn't go forward so it is a very difficult situation that we have but how many more crises and scandals do we need in the senate before people realize that the solution is to empower and free mps from party control and ensure the regions are well represented in the house of commons so that ontario and quebec can't just essentially run things that ignore the rest of the provinces and, uh, and then shut down the Senate. I mean, it's the long-term solution. Uh, when anyone talks about Canada in terms of us being a democracy, the one thing they always bring up is, but then they have this unelected, unaccountable Senate where senators can vote however they want and can just stop something that elected people have, have passed. How is that in any way legitimate? So uh, the long-term solution, I think it will eventually happen, As the Senate continues to fail to reform itself, and it could never make itself fully legitimate because it will always be unelected and unaccountable and appointed by partisan prime ministers. So senators can claim that they're somehow independent, but they've all been given a job by a a prime minister who's either liberal or conservative.
0: You know, I, I don't want to get too deep into the weeds here with uh, with political history or political sciences, but this all stems from the fact that uh, when these forms of government were were initiated, and this goes all the way back to the British system, of course, the Westminster system. Uh, they didn't trust people, <laughs> so no, exactly they said, "You guys aren't smart enough to actually pick the right people to govern you." So, but we'll let you have your House of Commons, you commoners, but we're going to put the smart people over here. Uh, and they're going to oversee what you do. And we've and by the way the United States is no better because they've got their their, their you know the electoral college in their electoral system. They don't govern on a day-to-day basis, but they still effect- effectively choose this. When are we going to get over this in in the 21st century that we don't need that sort of government anymore? It's
2: really difficult to do. Um, as the Supreme Court ruled on the case that Harper Mr. Harper referred to the Supreme Court a few years ago, they ruled back in 2014. The provinces have to agree. Some of the provinces don't want to abolish the Senate because they want the representation there. Um, and uh, it unfortunately just means that we're stuck with it for now, but I think the evidence is just going to continue to mount, not that there isn't enough already, but the continue to mount that the Senate will never be a legitimate body because of its uh, appointment system, that it's unaccountable, and that senators set up rules that protect themselves and allow them to essentially be lobbyists for whomever they want with no accountability and, and no ethical uh, restrictions on it, which means essentially they just get to do whatever they want. And we just can't have that part of our, our governance system that people can do whatever they want, especially when they're thwarting what uh, uh, the elected House of Commons and the MPs in there vote for.
0: Well, here's a classic example of that, and this is from the, uh, the CBC study about the Senate expenses here. And you, you, you alluded to this a couple of minutes ago. Uh, a number of them, of course, they, they're not supposed to be Liberal senators anymore. They're supposed to be independents. You know, and what's in a name, I guess. But now you've got, in the last week or so, uh, 11 members of uh, the Senate. Now they've split off, and they're calling themselves the uh, Canadian Senate Group, the uh, CSG. But as such, as we are now this organization, they're entitled to more funding, $470,000 a year now in new funding to hire staff and a secretariat to help prepare research. They're the same people doing the same job, but because they're calling themselves something different, they decided that they need more money.
2: Yes. And under their rules, which they write themselves, They can give themselves more money. They write all the rules for themselves. Uh, They didn't even have ethics rules for 148 years after they were created. The ethics rules were finally put in place in 2005. That version of the ethics rules has huge loopholes in it. It, As I mentioned, allows them to essentially be a lobbyist for whomever they want uh, in the Senate, blocking things that protect their private interests, and the interests of whichever business they may be connected with, uh, and uh, if they're not going to reform themselves, and now you know 148 years just to get ethics rules that are still a joke. So now we're up to uh, it's been 14 years since those have been in 162 years, and the Senate has still not reformed itself to make itself even barely ethical. How much longer do are we going to wait? It's just ridiculous. They, they act in their self-interest, and that's dangerous in a democracy when you're unelected and unaccountable. But they with- also act in their self-interest of their party or in sometimes themselves. But they face the voters at least once every four or five years. Yeah. Senators appointed and stay there can stay there till age seventy-five, doing whatever they want. It's dangerously undemocratic, and it has to be stopped.
0: Well, with the blessing of it will, it
2: will of the, take a lot to do it. Yeah. But
0: there's well, and, more yeah. And where's more the evidence where, where's the political will to get this done, though? Um, and nobody well, seems to I want to talk mean, about it.
2: Trudeau has uh, made this change, and he says, "I you know created independent senators, but he chooses them all, and he chooses the people who go on the advisory committees that advise him as to who to choose. That's no different than the old system, right? Jean Chrétien, Brian Mulroney." Would would past prime ministers would talk to people they chose and ask, who do you think I should appoint to the Senate? That's all Trudeau's done. And then they would appoint the person that those people suggest after reviewing the uh, suggested nominees. That's exactly what Trudeau's done. So they're not any more independent than any past senator, despite the the Liberals repeating that word again and again and again and again. And Trudeau admitted in an end-of-year interview Uh, last December, that they would never, he would never appoint someone who didn't agree with the values of the liberals. So they're liberals and they're just as partisan as ever. So obviously, he has no interest in, uh, in changing this and going further and actually abolishing the Senate. But if the, he's now, uh, appointed, uh, essentially a majority of senators and he's only going to be able to appoint more because many retirements are coming up. And if the Conservatives win an election, you're going to see those senators block pretty much everything that the Conservatives put through the House. That is not democratically legitimate in any way, shape, or form. But they, that's what they'll do, as they have in the past. When, when uh, Brian Morey was in power for so long that he had appointed a majority of senators, then they, were, they blocked things that the Liberals put through when Khrushchev was elected. It has to stop, but it's going to take the, the will of a lot of politicians, including senators, to say this, this is an illegitimate body and should not have any place in any country that calls itself a democracy.
0: Well, I mean, a more flagrant example of that was even last uh, term of government. There, I mean, Trudeau's got a majority government, uh, but. Uh, once he kicked the liberal senators out of the caucus and said, you're now independent, you can't sit in the caucus anymore, uh, I guess in an act of revenge, they started holding up pieces of legislation. They still had the, the votes there, but they just they wouldn't deal with anything. So, And, and again, there's no recourse for the House or for, for URI to do anything about that.
2: There is no recourse at all. In the U.S., they have a system when there's gridlock between the House and the Senate. Both members of the House in the U.S. and Senate are elected. And if they're batting a bill back and forth, they form a joint committee and work it out. Our system has no provision for doing that. And if the senators just said, no, we are not going to pass this bill, we don't care, House, how many times you send it to us, there's nothing anybody could do. People have to realize how dangerous that is with when you have senators who now are freed from even control of the party leaders in the House to do whatever they want. And some of them have said, there's one Senator, David Richardson, he said, Well, Trudeau said I was an independent when he chose me, so I'm going to do whatever I want. I mean, <laughs> really? This person is going to do whatever they want. And again, just to remind people, they only sit from Tuesday to Thursday, so I was working three days a week. They're paid. In the, They have a the salary in the top 5% of salaries in the country and all sorts of perks because they can expense all sorts of travel for, saying it's Senate business because I'm interested in it and I'm a senator and therefore it's Senate business and here's my receipts.
0: Well, apparently you can claim expenses too when you're going to party fundraisers. I mean, we found that out too, too didn't we, a few years ago?
2: No, exactly. It's it's, And they have not changed those rules. No one should think that they clean things up after... Mike Duffy, all they did was say you have to produce receipts. They did not change the fundamental rule that lets a senator define what Senate business is, which means whatever they want to do and expense it. If they say, oh, I'm I'm researching something I'm interested in, they can expense all the research costs.
0: The other element to not the changed I, at all I understand that somebody who maybe is going back to their high school civics classes can say, "Well, wait a second, uh, if the Senate doesn't pass that bill, I mean, it comes back to the House of Commons, and uh, you know they they can do this again. But what the Senate does to get around that is they don't even debate it. It just sits on their desk.
2: That's right that, and that happened with a few bills that uh, the, the House had passed, and uh, when time was running out last July. Uh, as the uh, Parliament was shutting down at the end of June and early July. The Senate just refused to pass some of the bills.
0: And, and their explanation is, well, we, uh, well, no, we haven't said no. We, we'll get around to it. Well, no, they're delaying. It's a stall tactic.
2: That's right. And even if the media said, we're going to drop everything and cover this as the biggest story in the country, the senators face no accountability. Right? They, no one could do anything to kick out any senator for blocking something completely undemocratically and unethically.
0: Well, No one can do anything. No, they police themselves. That's it's, it's somebody, somebody like a Don Meredith is going to get his wrist slapped from time to time for, for his behavior, but uh, they pretty much cover each other's backs.
2: They do, unless it's really egregious behavior by somebody, but not political behavior. No, no. one's been kicked out of the Senate ever for, for standing up to the House and saying, I, you know, on a whim, I disagree with you because, you know, my brother has some interest in this thing, and no one's ever been kicked out of the Senate for that. It's extremely dangerous, and just because it seems to be working now, because Trudeau's appointed a bunch of people who generally agree with the Liberals, what happens in the future if the Liberals lose, and Trudeau's appointed almost every senator? What do you think is going to happen? Well,
0: it's stalemate. And no
2: one will be able to do anything about it. There is no mechanism in the Constitution, no law that will prevent the Senate from just saying, no, sorry, House, we're not going to pass anything that you
0: have sent to us. And, and sadly, Duff, you know from past experience that as much outrage as might be generated from these numbers in this report, it's, it's probably a two-day story, and then people are going to forget about it.
2: Yeah, and... Uh, you know, as I say, the, the evidence will just continue to build, and there is a fifty-fifty split. But I think there are those who are in favor of keeping the Senate, because of regional representation, have not just have just not considered the possibility of increasing the representation outside of Ontario and Quebec in the House of Commons, and then the regions would be represented, but they'd be represented by people who are accountable instead of represented by people who are unaccountable. You know, if you think, and anyone who says, well, look, the Senate did this good thing that I agree with. That's not the way to set up a, a body. Think about the things they've done that you don't disagree with, and they're not accountable for those things. Just because they might have done one or two things to block something that the House passed, and you say, well, that was good, I didn't like what the House had passed, that is not the way to think about it. The way to think about it is, what if they can start blocking all sorts of things that you like that the House passes?
0: Well, that's going to happen. They can do that. That's going to happen and eventually. they may do
2: that at some point. Yeah. And that crisis, there is no solution to it. All of those senators, no matter how they act, would be allowed to keep being paid by the public until they're 75 years old.
0: Duff, we got to break it off at this point. Uh, thank you so much for the time and for, uh, for the conversation today. My pleasure. Take care. Duff Conig, of course, uh, co-founder of Democracy Watch.